all be seated. Glad to have you guys with us. Um, if you are not there yet, feel free to turn to Jeremiah chapter 31. Um, if you guys remember, uh, we began our journey through the covenants, um, I think it was like seven months ago, something like that. We began it in May. Um, and for the last six or seven months, we've one month at a time, uh, walked through the various covenants. I mean, the heart behind this series that comes to conclusion today um, is to kind of help us grow in an understanding of the overall meta-narrative of Scripture, to help us grow and understand what's actually going on, um, this progression of the story of Scripture. I mean, ultimately, we want to see how all of Scripture actually points to Jesus Christ. So as we started way back in May, we kind of began with this image um, of the Bible kind of being a puzzle that we're trying to piece together and figure out how all of these 66 books go together. <clears throat> and for many of us, we spend the overwhelming majority of our time kind of focusing on this New Testament portion of the Bible. It's a section of the puzzle that I think we so often understand, and so we're just piecing it together as we look at the Gospels, and as we look at Paul's letters, as we look at other writings, and trying to figure out, okay, how does this all make sense? And Jesus so often seems very evident in those stories, especially as you're engaging in the Gospel. And then for many of us, though, when we get to this Old Testament section, uh, we look at it and are often con confused, and kind of go about it often blindly trying to figure out, okay, how do these puzzle pieces go together? Um, even in my own life, I feel like I can be like my, my daughter, Ivy, who's almost, almost 18 months, and as she grabs that puzzle piece, she's just kind of sliding it around the board, having no idea where it goes until it kind of falls into place. And it's not really sure how it got there, but okay, that makes sense. And I think so often that can kind of be our approach to the Old Testament. And don't get me wrong, I think any time spent in the Word of God is valuable and will grow us. And so I think even spending time in the Old Testament as we don't understand it is going to be so valuable because the more time we spend in it, the more God will illuminate himself and we can start to grasp what's going on. And my hope is that through this series, we've been able to develop some tools and be able to develop seeing this storyline that has progressed from beginning to end of one story that God is making clear to us. See, we want to remember that the covenants are the backbone of this biblical narrative in which the rest of the Bible kind of becomes the body and flesh that helps us understand what is going on. And if we want to grasp the covenants, I believe that we need to kind of follow the overall structure and therefore begin back in May and kind of take us on this journey that leads us to today. And so we're going to kind of look at these different puzzle pieces that have brought us ultimately to Jeremiah 31, to this new covenant. And so we began looking at Genesis 1 through 3. And we saw how God established a covenant at creation with Adam and Eve, the creation covenant. As his image bearers, he gave them a covenant, and he gave them blessings and curses along that. And the blessing is implied with eternal life, and the curse is death. They were tasked with working and guarding the Garden of Eden, and refraining from one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And yet they failed, and thus death entered the scene. But in the midst of the sorrow and banishment from Eden, God still said, hey, through the seed of Eve, one will come that will ultimately 
destroy the serpent's head. And then years go by, and the second puzzle piece starts to take form. And it's a covenant he makes with Noah. And a flood comes and destroys all of the inhabitants because of the evil that had been done from the time of Adam and Eve following up to Noah. And all were destroyed except for Noah and his family. And it was out of this family that God called them to take the baton of Adam and Eve and fill the earth once again. And God promises unilaterally, unilaterally that he will not destroy the earth ever again. And as we see the rainbow in the sky today, it is the remembrance of that promise God made with his people. We progress forward to the Abrahamic covenant that picks up on God's original purposes with Adam. See, God wanted to create a people to glorify his name, to be a vice regent to this world. And so God chose Abraham and his seed. And through Abraham, a people were to come from him and be born into being under God's rule. They were to be a blessing to the world. And circumcision was the sign of this covenant as it set them apart from the rest of the world. And so centuries go by, and Abraham's descendants actually become a nation. We see God's plan taking form, the nation of Israel. And God brings them out of slavery in Egypt and establishes his covenant with them at Mount Sinai, the Mosaic Covenant. The Israelites are shown what it means to be the people of God, a holy people set apart, a kingdom to bless the earth by its distinctiveness. And this is where the law was set in place. And Moses, and then the priests, and then the prophets that came, the judges, were to follow as the covenant mediators for the people of God. And yet time and time again, they failed and broke the covenant with God. They needed a better mediator. And the more centuries go by, and Israel really is in shambles and desires to really just look like the other nations around them. And so they say, God, we want a king. And through their own means, they take Saul, who God quickly replaces with David. And the Davidic covenant is established in 2 Samuel 7 that gives the nation a king who represents ultimately the whole nation of Israel. He is called to be the one to fulfill the Mosaic covenant. And God tells David that his heirs will inherit the throne of Israel forever. And yet we see century after century and king after king doing evil in the sight of the Lord. And we're left wondering, will there ever come a king that will actually fulfill the Mosaic Covenant? Will there ever be one righteous enough to come and to ultimately fill the gap that was left by all these men of old? And that leads us to today's covenant. If you will, this is the last puzzle piece to place, to, be, to grasp what God is doing and saying through the covenants. And really, this puzzle piece is unique because it's kind of the hinge in which everything starts to make sense. For once you place it, you actually begin to see a whole new picture taking form over this puzzle. And that's the picture of Jesus Christ. 
See, the new covenant helps us make sense of the past, helps us understand where we are here and now, and points to the glorious future to come. And so we're going to spend our time unpacking Jeremiah 31 that walks through what this new covenant means for us. And it says in 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquities, and I will remember their sin no more. God's pointing to a time in the future. As he says, the days are coming. When this new covenant will come to pass, and it will be made clear, or he does make it clear that this covenant is new, in the sense that it looks nothing like that of the old. He says, not like the covenant that I made with your fathers. When he took them out of Egypt, he's ultimately pointing them back to the covenant that he made with Moses and Israel at Mount Sinai. What the New Testament refers to as the old covenant. Ultimately, God is saying, no, I'm not going to make a covenant like that because they, the, the Israelites, actually broke that covenant. As their husbands, they became an adulterous people who whored around apart from me. Just no, this covenant will be different. This covenant will be one in which you cannot break, for it will be unconditional. It will be new. So it leads us to the question, well, how will it be new? What is new about the new covenant? And we'll see today that ultimately there's three things in this text that we see as new. A new heart, a new people, and a new and final solution to sin. And the, the hope for our time this morning is that as followers of Jesus, we rejoice in what God has done through his son Jesus. That this is, this is a story in which we get to rejoice and proclaim praises to our God from where he took us to where we are today. And if you don't know Jesus, this is, this is a, a lesson to see God actually can invite you into this family. And he desires you to be part of his people. So let's begin with a new heart. The text says, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. See, no longer will the law of God be written on stone, like with the Israelites when he wrote the commandments on these tablets at Mount Sinai. But no, he says it will be written on their hearts. And since it will be written on their hearts, it will be ingrained in their very being. He's ultimately saying they're actually going to be able to follow through and live out the commandments of God, the commandments that he's placed before them. See, God knows the reality that it's, it's not just that you're taught the new commandments and that you're good to go. Because the reality is being taught the commandments doesn't necessarily automatically lead to being able to keep them. 
Well, there actually has to be a change, a transformation. See, the Israelite history is a great example of this. They were given the law at Mount Sinai and immediately broke it by making the golden calf. I mean, think about it this way. Being taught to do something doesn't always mean that you're able to do it. Just imagine if after church today I sat my wife Anna down and I was like, hey, babe, I love basketball. And so I think we are going to teach you how to dunk a basketball. She's 5'3". Okay? And so I'm like, we're going to start on calisthenic regiments. We're going to do calf raises. We're going to do squats. Okay, we're going to do box jumps. We're going to do jumping jacks. We're going to do jump rope until you cannot jump anymore. We're going to fill you with protein, creatine, all that stuff, okay? We're going to do it. You see, it doesn't matter how many hours, how many late nights or early mornings my wife puts into that. She isn't going to dunk on a 10-foot hoop. I actually looked it up. The shortest person to ever dunk was a man that was 5'4", so she's under that mark, okay? We're good. (laughs) She would literally need to be made anew to be able to have that ability to dunk, to be able to jump out of the gym. She would have to be changed from an external thing to an inward reality. Just like the law must move from being written on stone to written on our hearts. See, the prophet prophet Ezekiel actually expounds on this reality of the law written on the heart in more depth. And in Ezekiel 36, this is God speaking, and he says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God's people, his children, will be given a new heart. He has taken these hearts of stone and made them into hearts of flesh. A heart of flesh in which the Holy Spirit of God will reside. See, a heart of stone is is dead, cold, hard, impenetrable, unmoldable. Nothing can come from that. Yet a heart of flesh is alive and warm and tender and active. He's saying, I literally will make you anew. See, no one in this room could survive a heart transplant if he's like, yeah, we're going to take your heart. You see this rock right here. We're going to put it in there and you'll be set. You'd be like, that's the dumbest thing ever. Because a heart of stone does not give life. Charles Spurgeon says the Holy Spirit does not attempt to improve human nature into something better, but lays the axe at the root of the trees and declares there must become new creatures and that by a supernatural work of the omnipotent God. See, God takes a heart of stone, takes us as dead in our sins and our trespasses, and gives us a heart of flesh, a beating heart. Ultimately, we become a new creation. The old has passed away, and the new has come. And this heart is moldable to do the will of the Lord. Our heart becomes the clay in which God's hands begin to form us and make us into his children. 
And this transformation from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh doesn't happen by accident. You see, no matter how long I hold onto a stone in my hand, it's never going to change form. Or no matter how long I spend talking to the stone, it's no longer going to change or will not change form on its own. See, the only way that stone will ever be turned into flesh is through a power above and outside of man. The Spirit of God must change the very nature of a person. And transformed through the Spirit of God, through your renewed heart, as a people of God, the law will actually be written within you. He says, written on your heart, the very fabric of your being. It will be tattooed in the depths of your soul. And as Ezekiel says, through that you'll be able to walk in God's statutes and be careful to obey his rules. Those with a new heart will be able to truly love and obey God. They will literally be made new. You see, it'll be ingrained in their thinking, their feeling, their planning. Paul echoes this in 2 Corinthians where he says, and you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered to us, not written with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now the, Spirit, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, behold the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is Spirit. See, many of us in this room can actually attest to this truth. And I've seen it through many membership conversations I've had of hearing somebody share their testimony. And they share, ultimately using different language, but they share of their heart of stone being made into a heart of flesh. People share about their passions and desires radically changing because God entered their life. The pleasures that used to fill them up now just leave them wanting. Your heart used to stir for the things of this world, but now they stir for the things of the Lord. That's the evidence of a new heart. And so I encourage us, even as believers, to look back on our conversion, to look back on our story of when we were dead in our sins and have been made alive in Christ. When we have questions, when we have doubts, when we have concerns, look back to that moment and see who you were and who God has now made you to be and rejoice in those moments that your stone has become flesh. And the beautiful thing is that God doesn't just say, hey, I'm going to transform a person, but I'm actually going to transform a people, and they're going to be my people. You see, he's not calling us to go about this alone, but he's actually calling us to do this in community. He's saying a new people full of those who, like us, have been transformed and regenerated to the work of Christ. We see a new people in 33 and 34. 
He says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord. For they shall know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. So what's different between this old covenant and this new covenant that he's bringing us into? You see, in the old covenant, this Mosaic covenant, God established his covenant with the offspring of Abraham. One entered the covenant through physical birth, being born an Israelite, therefore there was this ethnic identity to being the people of God. And the physical sign of circumcision was the act and mark that set them apart as God's covenant people. It's what made them look different from the rest of the nations. So to answer the question, who was in the old covenant, you simply look to all the circumcised offspring of Abraham and their families, and then those that that work for them that have been brought into the fold. See, these families were part of the covenant community, regardless of whether or not they actually knew God. It was a mixed community of Yahweh followers and Yahweh rejectors. Both were part of the old covenant. Being regenerate or renewed didn't actually matter. Yet in the new covenant, we see God give a very different definition of those who are his new covenant people. He says, No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. See, those in the new covenant are those that know the Lord. He doesn't say know of the Lord. He doesn't say has heard of him, knows things about him. No, he says knows the Lord. And this language reveals that of an intimacy, of having a saving knowledge of the Lord. People born of the Spirit. People have had their hearts actually transformed from stone to flesh. As one theologian put it, only believers are members of the new community. All members are believers, and only believers are members. Therefore, in the new covenant community, there will no longer be a situation where some members urge other members to know the Lord. There will be no such thing as an ungenerate members of the new covenant community. All are believers, all know the Lord, because all have experienced the forgiveness of sins. So in this new covenant people, one does, not, one does not become a member by mere physical birth, but rather by a new birth, which requires faith on the part of those that are its members. And it's through your faith in Christ Jesus that actually establishes you as children of promise and actually offspring of Abraham. You see in Galatians 3, 27 through 29, Paul says, For as many of you were baptized into Christ, put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's no male or female. For all are one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. You see, what brings you into the people of God is that you are one of Christ through faith. In the Old Covenant, It was a physical circumcision that set them apart. Yet in the new covenant, it's a circumcision of the heart. It's the stone to flesh. So the sign of the old covenant, this physical circumcision, is no more needed for the people of God. Rather, the sign of the new covenant, the circumcision of the heart, is made evident in God's people through baptism. Baptism. 
Baptism is the oath sign in the new covenant. Baptism is ultimately where your faith goes public and you acknowledge through faith what Christ has done in you and what Christ will do through you. You see, it's this symbolic enactment of going from death to life, from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. It ultimately points to our union with Christ. In Romans 6, Paul says, We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. I mean, that's why we love to do baptism by immersion, of actually representing the dying and going below the water, dying to sin and rising anew out of that water as a new creation in Christ. It's the celebration and participating in the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. See, baptism is your public proclamation and the church's affirmation that you are part of the new covenant. You are part of God's people. And so if you have not been baptized upon your profession of faith, I urge you to talk to me or one of our elders, and we would love to kind of walk through what baptism actually means in more depth and what it represents and, and the beauty of stepping in to the waters of baptism. See, the New Testament model shows that upon profession of faith, you respond through stepping into the waters of baptism. It's the common refrain of repent and be baptized. You see, scripturally, there does not seem to be a biblical idea of followers of Christ who are not baptized or pursuing baptism. And so we want to invite you into that conversation, invite you to start thinking through what does that look like for you today? So God said he's going to establish a new people. And these new people are going to have something in common. They're going to know the Lord. But like so many of the covenants of old, so much of the story that we follow up to today, it leads us to the question of, well, will this actually last? We've seen covenants be broken. We've seen the people of God, it seems like, fail time and time and time again. Will God's people once again break the covenant? Yet here we're shown by the goodness and grace of God that he has established a new covenant as the eternal covenant covenant that will not be broken because he actually has established a new and final solution to sin. In the end of 34, it says, for I will forgive their iniquities and I will remember their sin no more. So God points to a day when their iniquities, their sins, their wrongdoings before God will be forgiven. And not only will they be forgiven, but he actually says, I will not remember them. God chooses to not remember the sins of his people. You see, under the old covenant, the sins and wrongdoings were always on the forefront of their mind. It was very much actually a part of their public life. For as God established the old covenant, the covenant with Israel, the sacrificial system also became established. And once a year, there was a day of atonement when sacrifices were made for the priests, who's the mediator for the people, and sacrifices were made on behalf of the people as well to cover all the sins of the year that just happened. And yet year after year and century after century, 
the Israelites performed these sacrifices. Because no sacrifice was ever actually good enough to end all sacrifices. For each year, they had a faulty mediator and ultimately an insufficient sacrifice. For Hebrews actually says it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The new covenant will do what the old covenant with Moses never could do. It'll bring a new, effective, and final solution to the problem of sin, the thing that separates us from God. For our sin to be forgiven and remembered no more, we actually need a true and better mediator, and we need a true and better sacrifice. And we see in this new and final solution for sin that Jesus actually steps into both of those roles and makes them a reality. Christ is the true and better mediator. For Jesus Christ is the only covenant mediator without sin. He's the only one that upheld the law. As he even says in the Gospels, I did not come to abolish the law, but I came to fulfill it. Therefore, the community will never suffer from a faulty mediator in Christ because he has held the law to its nth degree. You see, Jesus is the true and better sacrifice. Bulls and goats could not remove the stain of sin, but the pure and spotless Lamb of God was worthy and acceptable of that sacrifice. See, I love the story of, of Abraham in the Old Testament as he goes to sacrifice his son Isaac. And they're standing on that mountain together, and Isaac's like, Lord, Dad, where's, where's the sacrifice? And it's that moment that he's starting to realize, oh, that's going to be me. And the whole time Abraham has said, hey, God's going to provide the lamb. And yet, if we draw back to that story, you recognize that, that as Abraham is about to perform that sacrifice, to show his faith in God, God says, stop. And he reveals to him an animal to replace that sacrifice. It's important to note that in that story, it's not a lamb, but it's a ram. And thus even begins this imagery that rams cannot remove the stain and guilt of sin. And so from that moment, we're waiting and waiting and waiting to say, okay, where is this lamb? Because the lamb is the one that God will provide to take away the sins of the world. And thus enter Jesus, the very precious lamb of God, to be the one that dies on our behalf. See, Hebrews 10, 9 and 10 says, Behold, I have come to do your will. That's Jesus speaking. He does away with the first in order to establish, establish the second. And by that will, he has been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And then in verse 14, For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. You see, through Christ and Christ alone, we have been made right before God. Once we were rebels against God, and now we are God's children, his heirs, because of Jesus' atoning sacrifice. 
And it's through the cross of Christ that our lives now look radically different. I mean, think back to the fact that, that Christ's death, Christ even says, hey, I have to leave. I have to die. Yet the beauty is in me dying. We're going to send the Spirit, the Helper, the Counselor, to be among my people. And it's the Spirit of God that comes, and as even this passage says, it renews our hearts. It gives us the ability to walk in his statutes. Just think of a heart transplant procedure. To have a heart transplant, it requires the heart of another person to be put into you. Your heart is literally able to beat because somebody else's was not. Your life costs the life of another, and because of their heart, you are able to live. Therefore, the thing that sustains you was not your own. The thing that keeps your blood pumping and your body working costs another everything. And that is what Jesus did for you. The beauty of the gospel is that Jesus was not an unsuspecting or unwilling participant. Rather, he willingly, out of his love for you and me, out of ultimately his love for rebels, went to the cross and bled for us, bled for you and me. He willingly died that we may live. And yet the grave did not hold him. But he defeated sin. He defeated death. And as he rose, he has us rise with him. You see, his blood spills over our hearts of stone and transforms them into hearts of flesh. His is the one sacrifice that actually atones for all. And through that, we're given a new heart. Through that, we're given a new person. Therefore, those that confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their hearts that God raised them from the dead, you're saved and you can confidently say, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. How amazing is that reality that God takes dead, broken people and says, I've actually instilled my son into you. Now live out that reality as my child, as my vice regent to this world. For the Christian, we cling to and rejoice in what Christ has done. He has washed us anew, made us white as snow, and put his spirit within us. You see, no longer for a Christian does your sins define you. So don't let it define you now. Embrace the reality of what Christ has done in you. You are his child, you are heirs in his kingdom. As God says, he will forgive your iniquities. So go to him and be forgiven, recognizing that he does not hold on to those sins, but he chooses to not remember them. And rejoice in the sacrificial lamb whose blood was shed so that your blood did not need to be shed. Jesus is worthy of all our praise, all of it. For the very people that we are today is because of Christ. And if you're here this morning, you don't know Jesus. I plead with you to come to him. Maybe you think you're fine without him. 
Maybe you think, hey, if I just do enough good things and they'll outweigh the bad, then I'm going to be, I'm going to be okay. But the reality is that heart of stone is always going to weigh down that scale. Every single time. You'll never be good enough because the reality is missing a mark by the tiniest degree is still missing the mark. See, apart from a work of God, your heart of stone will never change to flesh. And by and large, you'll never be the people of God. So therefore, place your hope in the gospel. Place your hope in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ because there is hope for you in Jesus. For he is the great physician who can take your heart of stone and turn it into a heart of flesh. Come this morning and repent and believe in Jesus, the the mediator that saves. You see, this, this new covenant is glorious news for us. For through Christ, all other covenants are going to find their fulfillment and establish his followers as really this new covenant people. Through the cross, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have been given a new heart, made into a new people, and actually can celebrate and experience this new and final solution to sin. I want to end with some beautiful words from Tim Keller as he reflects on Christ through the covenants. It says, Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go into the void and create a new people of God. Jesus is the true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better David whose victory becomes his people's victor because because through him a stone was not lifted to accomplish it by themselves. And Jesus is the real rock of Moses, the real Passover lamb, innocent, perfect, helpless, slain, so that the angel of death will pass over us. He is the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, and the true bread. To him be all glory, honor, and praise. Let's pray. Lord God, we praise you that you are the great physician. That you are the one that took hearts of stone dead and made them into hearts of flesh that are able to beat and rejoice for you. Lord God, I pray that us this morning, we we take on this reality and we realize that we as followers of you are new covenant people. We're called to to live life together, of following you, of obeying you, Lord. May we be people that daily, hourly, every moment, look to you and praise you for who you are. Praise you for your son who was the atoning sacrifice, the only sacrifice that could ever actually make us right with you. Maybe people that praise you for the gospel. Maybe be people who live lives that say, to him be all glory, honor, and praise. It's the name of your son Jesus. We pray these things. Amen. See, we're going to have a time of response through communion. I mean, communion is the meal, really, of the new covenant people. 
as we look back at the cross of Christ and see what he did. You see, in Luke's gospel, Jesus actually took the cup and he said, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The cup actually points us back to the, the Old Testament where the cup, the cup often recog- uh, was symbolized as the wrath of God, which is poured out on those who rebel and sin against God. And yet the reference to this blood Jesus speaks of as his own. You see, he's pointing to his death, for it was that sacrifice. It was Jesus that actually took that cup and drank the wrath of God so that we don't have to. You see, communion is a celebratory meal of Christ's death, making us right with God and uniting us with him for eternity. So if you are a member of the New Covenant community, this this meal is for you, and we invite you to partake, to take the cup, to take the bread, and rejoice in what Christ has done. If this is not you, this is the only element of our gathering that we ask you to please refrain from. But if you have questions or want to know, okay, why can't I take that, or I want to take that, again, please come talk to me or one of our elders afterwards, because we would love to walk with you through the gospel and walk with you. What does it mean to be members that can partake of this meal? Let's stand and and respond to God through worship. Who else commands all the hosts of heaven? Who else can make every king bow down? Who else can whisper in darkness tremble?